Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. This is Amina Keshin Kamel, and you're listening to Legalese. Episode 9 will be introduced by my guest co-hosts here today, ASU Law Professor Art Henshaw and Bruce Meyerson, who is an adjunct professor at ASU Law who teaches courses in conflict resolution. You can find their biographies on our website. This is Art Henshaw. I'm the director of the Lodestar Dispute Resolution Center here at the College of Law, and I'm a faculty member as well. In the Lodestar Center, what we do is we serve as uh, basically an umbrella organization for all of the uh, matters that the College of Law takes in the uh, realm of dispute resolution, other than going straight forward to trial. So that would be negotiation, mediation, arbitration, things along those lines. And one of our star adjuncts is Bruce Meyerson, former judge uh, at the Arizona Court of Appeals, former general counsel of ASU, managing partner of two of the major law firms here in town. Oh, just one? Oh. Well, I was a managing partner of my own law firm, and there's a firm of one. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's two major law firms. David was a firm of one at one time. That's right. Uh, And uh, basically, I call him the godfather of alternative dispute resolution in Arizona because his work has been integral in everything that has happened in Arizona, from the court system to outside the court system through education as well. So, Bruce, take it away. That's quite quite an introduction. What can I say after that? But thank you very much. And I've had the pleasure of of, of working with Art and and, uh, in some small way supporting our Lodestar program here, and uh, I think thanks to Art's leadership, our program is now ranked in the top 10 of all law schools uh, in the country in dispute resolution, and so we feel very, very, very proud of of what's been accomplished here at Arizona State University. Wonderful, and today we have David Boyce. It is an honor to have you here. It's great to be here. Um, I'm going to let Bruce uh, take off with the first question we have. Well, I want to first start by thanking David Boyce for for coming here to to Arizona State University and and not only uh, giving uh, the lecture here this evening uh, on uh, the subject of of litigation in the age of settlement, but also uh, by being with us here all day. Uh, and, and it's uh, remarkable stamina uh, that he <laughs> has shown here by starting off with uh, a, a, one of our classes in constitutional law, meeting with our faculty, meeting with our students, uh, and other meetings this afternoon before the speech. And of course, uh, David uh, Boyce is regarded as uh, one of the, if not the premier uh, lawyer in the United States uh, and his reputation is most known as a litigator, and so, but we are particularly pleased that he's here to talk not just about litigation, but to talk about uh, alternative dispute resolution and, and settlement. And so I guess that's maybe a good place to start, uh, Amina, if I can. And uh, your speech tonight is on litigation in the age of settlement, and obviously the practice of law has changed over the years. Uh, and and uh, maybe you can start our discussion by uh, giving us your impressions of, of, of that change, whether it's been good or, or bad. It, it certainly has been a change. It's been a very significant change over the decades that I've been practicing law. When I graduated from law school and started to practice law, uh, alternative dispute resolution techniques were very limited. Um, there was some arbitration. There probably was some mediation, but nobody that I knew involved was involved in it. Uh, Of course, many claims were negotiated and settled, but many, many cases also went to trial. Uh, The number of trials uh, was a much larger percentage of civil disputes uh, when I started practicing law than today. 
And I think that's been a good thing in a lot of respects. I think it's also a more complicated thing in other respects. I think that uh, to the extent that alternative dispute resolution techniques have permitted us to resolve civil disputes fairly and more efficiently than the judicial process, I think that's been a very good thing. And I think that, for example, mediation uh, is something that has played an increasing, an increasingly effective and useful role in resolving disputes. Uh, as I say, when I started practicing law, I didn't know anybody who went to mediation. And, uh, and, it, and it took a few decades before mediation became very popular. But I think today, uh, most disputes uh, are subject to mediation at some point in time. Mediation is not always successful, but uh, mediation solves a great many cases that I would not have thought five or ten years ago would have been able to be solved short of trial or arbitration or some kind of adjudicative result. And I think that's a very positive uh, result because I think it, it reduces cost, it increases the speed of resolution, and in, in some cases, perhaps in most cases, it gives the parties a better sense that they have been treated fairly uh, because I think the mediator can help each party see the other party's point of view and can help bring people together to a consensual uh, arrangement. So I think that part of it has been, uh, has been very positive. I think that the, the arbitration uh, process also has some positive aspects, but I think it also has some more complicated aspects. I think that when people go into arbitration because they feel that that is a faster, more efficient uh, way of resolving a legal dispute, I think that's very positive. And I think arbitration performs that function in many cases. On the other hand, where people are forced into arbitration, not because they've made a decision that that's what they really want, but because that is embedded in a contract of adhesion that they feel that they're required to accept. Uh, I think that is more complicated. It has some positive aspects, but I think it has some negative aspects too. You know, I was recently in Atlanta and walked through the Civil Rights Museum there, and as I was doing that, it occurred to me, what if we had mandatory arbitration in the 60s and all the cases that have formed the foundation of our view of civil rights law uh, had been in arbitration? We might have a different society. And, and as an arbitrator, I, I like to think I'm, I'm, I'm objective looking at arbitration, but it sounds like you have some skepticism uh, about it. Uh, it's not that I have skepticism about arbitration per se. Uh, I think that uh, parties who make a decision that that's the way they want to go uh, usually do that for good reason. And I think arbitration has, like every dispute resolution technique, it has advantages and disadvantages compared to litigation. But for many people in many situations, I think the advantages of arbitration will outweigh the advantages of, of litigation. My concern is for the people who don't have a realistic choice. And I think that is something that we have not focused on enough. On the one hand, uh, I think it's important that people who are offering goods and services have a way of reliably predicting how those disputes or the disputes relating to those goods and services are going to be resolved. And so that's in favor of arbitration. On the other hand, the, the party who uh, accepts it really without any realistic choice. I think that raises issues um, that we really haven't, haven't grappled with because I don't think the, the laws were passed at a time when that was a prevalent situation. So I have a question about ADR, so alternative dispute resolution, not as it pertains to the legal industries, but how it could be used in other industries as well, and whether or not you think the general public ought to know more about ADR, not just lawyers. I think they should, because I think that the, the general public can benefit 
from alternative dispute resolution techniques. Uh, after all, the cost of litigation is enormous today. For the average person, and even for the average small or even medium-sized business, um, getting involved in litigation can be a losing proposition even if you win the case, just because of the cost of disruption. So if there is an alternative way of resolving that dispute fairly, more simply, and certainly more cost-effectively, I think that's something the general pu public ought to be more aware of. I also think that even if you're not talking about a legal dispute that might go to court, even if you're talking about the kind of dispute that can occur between a department store and its customers, uh, maybe nobody's going to go to a, a lawsuit over that, but you still, I think, benefit from having an efficient dispute resolution process. Uh, it used to be that people could return their goods uh, for a money-back refund. Some places still have that. Many stores have a complaint department that you can go to. I think that people are struggling to find ways to make those processes more efficient so that they can both solve the problems that they're designed to solve, but do so in an efficient and cost-effective way. So one of the things that you're talking about in dispute resolution processes outside the court system. So there are, there are some that are out there. For instance, the U.S. Postal Service has one for their employees um, where people are required to go to mediation. Remember that Remember the, the phrase going postal, yes, right? Yes, you don't right. hear that anymore. Right. And this, pro yeah. this process, basically they started a mediation program in response to the people who were postal workers who were shooting up McDonald's and things along those right. lines. And it seems to have worked in the employment area. So do you think that there's something particularly helpful about things like mediation in certain areas? I mean, obviously you were talking about consumers and merchants and sort of what cases does it work? What areas does it not work so well? I think that in the vast majority of areas where you're talking about employees and customers, uh, having an effective alternative dispute resolution technique is likely to work pretty well. Because if you think about what a customer wants, what an employee wants, it's often just to be listened to, to have the department store or the employer understand what the problem is and make a good faith effort to solve it. Um, just talking things through can often eliminate a lot of the resentment that can otherwise build up and the feeling of powerlessness that can cause that kind of resentment to escalate. So I think that having a process, whether it's a postal service or uh, Google or uh, a department store where customers, employees can bring their problems and feel that they are in a context in which somebody is genuinely trying to listen to them and solve those problems, I think can go a long way to improving both employee relations and customer relations. So what I hear you talking about is procedural justice, right? And yeah. People want to be heard. They want to a neutral party who they can yeah. air their grievances to. They want to make sure that the other side hears them. Is, is that how you... I think that's exactly right. I, I think that's exactly right. And one of the reasons I think mediation works so well is that they come in, they tell their story, and they talk to a neutral. And the neutral is often saying to both sides, I think you're off base here. I think, I think you've got a good point mm -hmm. there, but I think over here it's not so good. And... If you've got a good mediator who's got good people skills, he can listen to people, he can help them see not only the strengths of their case, but the weaknesses of their mm -hmm. case and the strengths of the other person's case. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the, the sense of sort of procedural due process, of having an opportunity be, to be heard, um, makes an enormous amount of difference. When, when people get really angry, mm -hmm. it's when people feel that they haven't had a fair shot mm -hmm. at having their grievance heard. Right. If they have a fair shot, even when they lose, they may not be happy, but they understand that they've had a, a fair hearing. Yeah. And I think that goes a long way to tamping down resentments. I'm going to ask my co-host for, let me ask one follow-up question on this. One of the things that we've seen over the last, I'll say, 10 to 15 years in mediation is that 
people used to start out for these reasons that we just discussed. They'd start out together and trying to talk things out a little bit. And now we see everybody doesn't want to be in the same room ever. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you have an opinion on which do you think is better? Do you think it's better in some cases as opposed to others? I, I think that the more complicated and or acrimonious mm -hmm. a dispute is when it gets to mediation, the more likely shuttle diplomacy is going to be better than having everybody in a room. Yeah. Can you explain why? Uh, because I, I, I think when you get everybody in the room, particularly at the beginning, uh, everybody feels they've got to stake out their position. And when they stake out their position, um, there's going to be an inevitable amount of certain posturing. Um, that tends to dig themselves in mm -hmm. to a position. Right. It also tends to make the other side more aggressive and dig in. Right. So, um, I, mean, yeah. if, I mean, let's, let's say you've got a dispute where it, it really ought to be about $100. But if people are really far apart and somebody comes in and says, I think it ought to be 200 and somebody says, I think it ought to be one, you've started off the mediation in uh, probably the most difficult way you could. And if I come in on one side and say it ought to be 200, that drives you to one. If I'd come in and said, I think it ought to be 120, maybe you say, well, I think really 75 or 80 is better. Mm -hmm. And now we've got a, a, a range that maybe we can resolve it in. I think a mediator is more likely to pull out of somebody a more reasonable demand or offer early on than is likely to be volunteered in a group setting. Uh, because in a one-on-one -on -one session where the mediator is simply talking to you, he can beat you up a little bit without you feeling that he's on the other pe person's side. Uh, and if he does it gently enough and effectively enough, he may get you to a reasonable position. He can then go into the other s side and try to get them. and. And if they're not prepared to be reasonable, he, you know, he can say to them, look, I think the other side is prepared to be reasonable if you are, but you're just not, you're not helping me here. Can't you, can't you move a little bit? Give, okay. me a little, give me a little help. So first offers, essentially coaching with first offers mm -hmm. is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, yes, exactly. If, if the, I think the mediator helps a great deal in coaching out the first offer and then in explaining that offer to the other side. Mm -hmm. And... A mediator you know, tries to be friends with both sides right? and um, tries to get credibility with both sides. And that's easier to do when you don't have to do it in front of the other side uh, sometimes. So I think that the shuttle diplomacy can, can help a lot, particularly at the beginning, particularly with something where the parties are a little acrimonious. I do think there, there is often a time when getting the two principles in a room with a mediator right. um, can seal the deal. Often, the principles, if they're talking to the other principal in, in the presence of the mediator, is going to want to appear more reasonable than they are going to want their lawyers to take a position on. Uh, so you can sometimes make a lot of progress up to a point where in order to get the final deal done, the mediator needs to get both of the principals in there and and talk to them about how the difference between them is less than what they're going to be paying the lawyers. And does it really make sense for you to, right. to fight this out? Right. Well, you had previously mentioned people skills as a highlight trait that yeah. a mediator needs to have, and that makes complete sense. But what if you're a lawyer or a non-lawyer who wants to be a mediator? or finds yourself in that situation where you're mediating and you don't have those people skills, is there a way to develop people skills like that? Or <laughs> That's a great question. I, I, think there, I, I think people skills can be developed. I think there are a variety of components to that. I think one of those components is patience. It's ability to listen to people. People like to be listened to. They don't like to be interrupted. Uh, particularly when they're trying to tell their story. And uh, often when you have people who are in a dispute, they are emotional, 
about their position and it kind of spills out and they repeat themselves and it's not a very efficient way to get information. And uh, somebody who is interested in efficiency may try to say, well, I've heard that before. Whereas I think a successful mediator will be patient and just let them get it all out and get it all out in their way. I think uh, another skill that, that people can, can learn is to be sympathetic. You don't have to agree necessarily that their position is right, but it's important to let them understand that you understand how they feel uh, so that they don't feel that you don't get it. Uh, it. It may be that their complaint isn't a legal complaint. It may be their complaint is blaming somebody else for something that they're really responsible for. But they feel usually sincerely that there's a problem here. And so you want, as a mediator, I think you want to show some sympathy for them. I think the, a third thing that can be learned is to be organized. When you're trying to convince somebody that they need to move, you need to be very organized. It's the opposite of what the party can do. The party can be emotional, the party can spill over, the party can repeat, the party can be inconsistent. The mediator can't be that way because the mediator has got to be persuading the party to move, persuading the party as to what their problems are, for example, with their case or what the strengths are in the other side's case. And that needs to be done in an organized way and in a consistent way because if the mediator starts being inconsistent, then the mediator will lose credibility. And I think the last thing is, uh, except in a few cases, when sometimes somebody needs to be really talked to sternly, you want to try to do it gently. Um, uh, you don't want to make the party, either party, feel that you are antagonistic to them. You're trying to help them. And, and part of that is, and one thing that a lot of mediators say at the very beginning is, um, uh, I can't solve this problem. This is a problem only the two of you can solve. I can maybe help you see some things and look at things a little bit differently, but you're going to have to solve this problem yourself so that you empower the parties. You don't, you don't make the parties feel that you're going to judge them you make the parties feel that you're on their side in trying to get this thing resolved. I think those kind of techniques, those kind of people skills, uh, people can learn, can, they can be taught. Thank you for that, because I've, I've spoken to some classmates or other law students who are like, oh, you know, I don't need to really be a people person. I'm like, well, you know, you kind of have to be. We're in an industry yeah. where you have to have good communication skills. And I, I wanted to hear yeah. something that's encouraging yeah. for people who might not think they have those people skills. You know, as, I, as I'm listening to, to your discussion, and I think about, about how your firm has been described as a litigation powerhouse and how you've been described as an aggressive lawyer, and I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, they don't, they don't understand you uh, because <laughs> you have a, a remarkable temperament, a remarkable thoughtfulness, a, a very a gentle way of expressing yourself. So I, I don't understand where this description of aggressive lawyer came from. Well, I, I, think you can, I think you can be aggressive in a reasonable and even gentle way. I think, I think the firm is aggressive. I think I'm aggressive in uh, trying to protect my client's interests. Um, I think lawyers have an obligation to um, represent their clients zealously. But that doesn't mean loudly. Uh, that doesn't mean irrationally. It doesn't mean in a mean-spirited way. You can be zealous or aggressive, whatever term you like to use, and still, I think, be civil, uh, still recognize that the people on the other side are deserving of respect as well. I, I think that people respond better to respect and reason than they do people yelling and attacking them. And so the positions that I take may be aggressive, and I try to support those positions effectively. But 
I also try to present those positions as I would in my living room to somebody. Uh, if I were trying to convince you in my living room. Your wife room, is, a, is a lawyer, so and so you, a lawyer. you probably had a lot of experience. <laughs> yeah. well, I, 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 know not to, I know not to try too hard to convince her. Well, my wife is a lawyer, too, so I understand what you've been going through there. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but if I, assuming I'm trying to convince somebody who's more convincible than various, and if I'm in my, I don't, I don't yell and shout and wave my arms and pound the table. Um, I, I try to persuade them. And that's the same way that I would do with a, with a judge or, or with a jury. You know, let me just change the subject a little bit. And, and your firm has been uh, noted for alternative fee agreements. Uh, and uh, many law firms uh, have not chosen to, to do that. Uh, and, and, and maybe explain for our audience what an alternative fee agreement is and, and why you have chosen to, to use that more frequently than sure. perhaps other lawyers. Sure. I mean, most lawyers have historically, and, and most lawyers today still, uh, charge by the hour. Uh, lawyers will have different hourly rates, and the client will get a bill at the end of the month or some other period that will add up all of the hours that all the lawyers spend on it times their lawyer's billing rights, and that's the amount that the client gets charged. Now, if you think about it, that puts the lawyer and the client in a conflicted position. The lawyer uh, wants the case to go on forever uh, because the lawyer is going to be making all these hourly fills. fees. The client wants the case over immediately. Um, now, I think that lawyers do really a remarkable job of serving their clients and trying to make sure that uh, even though they may have an economic incentive to keep a case going, they try to resolve it as efficiently and quickly as possible. Uh, I've seen that over 50 years of practice, that, that lawyers consistently uh, try to do that. However, human nature being what it is, it is almost impossible to entirely divorce economic incentives from behavior. And so I think that uh, one thing about alternative fee arrangements, and alternative fee arrangements is just a long name for saying some way of pricing other than uh, by an hourly rate is, is something that has some advantages in that respect. I think it also has advantages because it aligns the client's interest and the lawyer's interest. I mean, for example, if you have a success fee that varies depending on how much success you would obtain for a client, whether it is in the form of a contingency fee in a, for a plaintiff's case or a uh, different kind of success fee if you're defending a client. Those align the client's interest and the lawyer's interest and make the client believe that the lawyer really is representing their interest. It also gives the lawyer a real incentive for efficiency. We have a lot of alternative fee arrangements that are not based on hourly. And so the more hours we put into a case, in general, the less profit will be for us. What that means is that we have a real incentive to be efficient. Uh, now, one of the things that you do if you are trying to be really efficient is you try to have fewer, better trained, more capable, more experienced lawyers. Uh, on a case. Um, most law firms of our size have three to four associates for every partner. That's called leverage. And um, what happens is that the partners make money because they charge the clients more for the associate's time than they're paying the associate. Our so-called leverage is less than one-to-one. -one. We're the only major litigation firm that has such a low ratio of associates to partners. Uh, and that's because we want our associates to be very efficient. Uh, we want to limit how many associates work on a matter, uh, all because when we pile up lots of hours on a case, it's not on the client's tab, it's on our tab. Now, what that has done is it has meant that we're a much more efficient 
uh, law firm for clients who insist on hourly billing, which a lot still do. So I think they get a real bargain there. Uh, but the reason that we have adopted this approach is because given our alternative fee arrangements, we have a strong incentive to be as efficient, uh, as cost-effective, and as quick as, as, as we can. I think all of those end up benefiting the client. It, it also can benefit the lawyers because if you get a really good result really fast, almost all clients are prepared to share that benefit with a lawyer um, because they recognize that they've gotten a really good deal. And so you can actually uh, charge uh, very substantial amounts of money in terms of success fee and contingency fees and the like based on the fact that you of your success. Do you feel you've, that clients have responded to that and you've gotten work and client relationships yes. because of that? I, I think we have a number of clients who are with us uh, because of our alternative uh, fee arrangements. Um, and uh, our alternative fee arrangements, in some years, the uh, resources devoted on alternative fee arrangements actually exceed the resources okay. devoted on uh, hourly rates. Okay. Uh, and I have um, believed since we started our firm 21 years ago, that uh, alternative fee arrangements were the future. And I had actually expected that by now, almost all firms would be on that. Uh, that has not happened. In part, I think it's inertia. In part, I think it is people have a hard time figuring out how to price an alternative fee. Cost-based pricing is always the easiest. Uh, cost plus contracts are always the easiest to price. But in every area except the law, <coughs> and maybe government contracting occasionally, people have abandoned cost plus contracts because cost plus contracts don't give the supplier the incentive to hold costs down because the more they cost, the more they make. And uh, I think that in, in sort of every area except the law, people have gone away from cost-based to value-based pricing. It, it's also the case that uh, ordinarily you can't impose cost-based pricing unless you've got some kind of market power. But I think the primary uh, issue as far as uh, lawyers and their clients are concerned is that because of the difficulty in pricing alternative fees, they sort of default to hourly fees. But that is the kind of cost-based as opposed to value-based pricing that people in virtually every other industry have recognized as very inefficient and contrary to the consumer's interest. Um, I think it would be interesting if you would describe for our audience one of these alternative-based uh, fees. And you gave the example uh, this morning about your work for uh, on the Christie's and Sotheby's case. Sure. That's a good example. Yeah, that, that was a case in which we had a, a contingency fee that kicked in or applied only after the plaintiffs got a certain amount of money. In the Sotheby's Christie case, was about they had to get $400 million before we got any fee at all. But then we got 25% of everything that came in afterwards. And uh, since we ultimately uh, recovered substantially more than $400 million, that worked out to be a good deal for us, but it worked out to be a terrific deal for the plaintiffs. Sometimes we will take a, a straight contingency fee. And depending on the case, it can be anywhere from 15 to 35% of the recovery. Now, if you're representing a defendant, sometimes if you believe and the defendant believes that the plaintiff's damage demand is a realistic one, you may have a contingency fee arrangement on the defense side where you get a percentage of everything you save. Now, the problem is that often the defendant believes that the plaintiff's damage claim is so outrageous that um, it's never going to get um, seriously considered, and so they don't want to give a percentage of that. And so you have to come up with a different uh, way of calculating a, a uh, success fee. Sometimes we will have a fixed fee, flat fee, where uh, we will uh, get paid a certain amount of money either per month or per year or sometimes for the entire case. Mm -hmm. 
which may go on for several years. Is that what you had in the American Express cases? That's what we had in the American, American Express cases. We had a, a blend. We had a annual fixed fee, and we had a percentage of the recovery. Okay. Uh, and uh, because we recovered a very large amount of money, that worked out very well. If we'd not recovered a large amount of money, the fixed annual fee would not have begun to cover what we invested in the case. So there's always, in the case of alternative fee arrangements, a risk as to whether you're going to recover. But if you operate efficiently and you pick your cases properly and you price them properly, I think it works out more profitable for the law firm as well as less costly for the, for the client than the traditional hourly, hourly billing. In addition to success fees and contingency fee key fees and, and flat fees for particular matters, uh, we have occasionally uh, said to a client, we will do all of your litigation this year, whatever it is, for X amount of money. That gives them the ability to really plan uh, one of the things that uh, a lot of uh, companies uh, dislike is the fact that the litigation budget is always unplanned because nobody knows how many cases are going to be brought. This gives them an ability to plan. We, we, we in effect, take the risk of uh, an excessive amount of litigation. Um, but that is sometimes a very attractive right. uh, approach. If you have a follow-up, go Well, ahead, I know I, I wanted to go into another, I, another area. Please but, do. Um, so I want to talk about uh, a case that, that if you're successful, uh, I, I think could be your greatest legacy, which is the case challenging the Electoral College. Because yes. that case has the potential, uh, if successful, to really in a profound way reform our whole election system in this country. Uh, and I think that's a case that many people are not aware that has been filed and is ongoing, and maybe you could just speak to that if you if you would. Sure. In fact, I just came last week from an argument in San Antonio, Texas, from a case that we filed there, and the case attacks the winner-take-all aspect of the Electoral College uh, and attacks it on constitutional grounds, both under the 14th Amendment and the First Amendment of the Constitution. And in all but two states, all of the electoral votes for president that the state has goes to the winner of the popular vote in that state, even if it is only by 1% or even if it's only by one-tenth of 1%. So if one candidate gets 51% of the vote and one candidate gets 49% of the vote statewide, in 48 states, the candidate with 51% of vote gets all of the electoral votes. Now, if you're in a state like California that always votes for the Democratic candidate for president for the last 20 or 30 years, if you're a Republican, your vote just doesn't count for anything. If you are a Democrat in Texas that hasn't gone for a Democratic presidential candidate in 20 or 30 years, your vote doesn't count for anything. Uh, and that has a lot of bad effects. Uh, we think it's unconstitutional because it deprives people of having their vote actual, actually register for president. Well, it creates, a, a I guess, a classification between the voters who vote for the winner, the voters who vote for the loser, uh, on, a, on, on the issue of the right to vote. So there's a compelling interest test there that the state has to come forward with. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, uh, and some of the second order effects are uh, because everybody knows that uh, Texas is going to go Republican, California is going to go Democrat, the candidates don't campaign there. And so they're essentially shut out of that kind of participation. Uh, in addition, the party on the losing side tends to atrophy. Uh, and Justice Scalia talked about uh, the important First Amendment principle of the right of association that was 
implemented through political parties and how if you have something that sufficiently disadvantages political parties, uh, that can violate First Amendment concerns. Justice Kagan, writing for four uh, justices just uh, recently in a concurring opinion, uh, noted that uh, the First Amendment precludes uh, actions by the state that would tend to prevent political parties from effectively participating uh, in the electoral process, which the winner-take-all approach um, does. In addition, the, the winner-take-all approach tends to push our political parties to extremes. If you're a uh, Republican uh, presidential candidate, you don't have to move to the center in order to try to capture independents in California or Democrats in California that might vote for a Republican. Because you know even if you do, you're still not going to win that state. If you're a, a Democrat, you don't have to move to the center to try to capture uh, votes in uh, Texas because you know even if you do capture some additional votes from independents and um, Republicans who are prepared to cross over in Texas, not going to do you any good because you're still going to lose the state. So the winner-take-all aspect of it tends to push the political parties to extremes. Whereas uh, if, just as an example, um, the electoral votes were uh, divided proportionally, that would mean that you would want to contest for every vote that was out there. You would, you would be pushing the candidates to campaign not only nationally, but more in a, a centrist way so that they could to capture that important middle uh, voters. Right now, that happens only in you know, a dozen so-called swing states. Um, and the, the reliably red states and the reliably blue states are left out of it. And the voters in those states, and I think the country as a whole, um, suffer as a result. Well, that's an exciting prospect. Now I'm going. Now I'm going to be all over this case. I didn't even know it was out <laughs> oh, there. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Very important. I'm, I'm yeah. so interested in this. Um, so you have just persuaded me that the electoral college, the way it works in most states, is is improper. And you earlier said that a lot of what lawyers um, do is persuasion and persuasiveness. Uh, and I want to, you know, there's not a lot of discussion about how negotiation actually is a form of persuasion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just going back to Aristotle and persuasion, he said there's logos, pathos, mm -hmm. and ethos, right? That's like, there's logic, there's emotion, and then there's sort of the character of the person who's mm -hmm. making the argument. And I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of uh, your thoughts on uh, on negotiation as a as a form of persuasion in and mm -hmm. of itself. I, I think that there is there is persuasion in negotiation, and one of the things you're trying to do is you're trying to persuade the other side of the weaknesses in their case and the strengths in your case. And in doing that, I think that all of uh, you know, Aristotle's principles apply. Uh, I think that you, you want to have logic, um, particularly when you are um, uh, you know, trying to um, uh, convince somebody. Uh, you want to have credibility. You want them to believe you. I think that um, you can sometimes, I think it's a little bit less true, but you can sometimes also make some progress emotionally with them. I think the place where emotion plays the biggest role is in trying to convince the other side that you are where you are. Because whenever you go into a negotiation, each side is doing two things. They're trying to figure out what is my bottom line and what is the other side's bottom line. And if you are unrealistic about your bottom line, you won't be able to negotiate a settlement. If you are inaccurate about the other person's bottom line, you may not be able to get a settlement because you will think they're prepared to go either higher or lower, depending on what you're seeking, than they actually are. And I think as many cases that fail 
is not fail because one side or the other misapprehends where the other side's walk away point is. Mm -hmm. And so one of, the, one of the important things about both emotion and credibility is when you get to the final point in where you say, this is the range. It's, we're not going to be able to get above or below that range. And you've got to be very careful about when you do that because that can sound like a take it or leave it approach right. that tends to turn people off. Yes. And so you need to convey that without appearing arrogant, without appearing that you're trying to take control of the process. But you, you need to be able to both try to tease out of the other side where they are and also convey to the other side in a credible way where you are. And that is as important, I think, as a persuasive mm -hmm. uh, part of it. Because in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, there is a point that both sides would accept if each side knew with certainty that that was the best they could do. And I think more settlement negotiations fail because of not recognizing where that point is than for any other single reason. And is that where mediators are most helpful? I think mediators can be very helpful there. I think because mediators can be both very helpful in terms of credibly conveying where the other side is, as well as trying to squeeze out um, uh, where you are uh, and, and, and help you, uh, help, help you actually get there, uh, but, uh, but then get there and, and use that as a mechanism for bringing both sides to the point where you can, you can get a deal done. And the mediator can do that in a way that bilateral negotiators can't. Because the mediator is neutral. The mediator will ordinarily be trusted. Mm -hmm. um, so when the mediator says, look, I have really gone through this with them, and I think that this is where they, I don't think you're going to move them beyond this. That's something that you can take with more credibility than if the other side simply tells you that. You know, we only have a, a few minutes left, and we, we really talked a lot about law, but not about things you might do when you're not practicing <laughs> law. Uh, and so, what what are what are you are your interests out outside of uh, outside of law? Well, I, I sail. I like to sail. I have a um, a winery in California that I, uh, I operate that. Uh, uh, that I would like to spend more time on than I do, but that I spend a considerable amount of time on. By the way, did, did, was that uh, winery impacted by the fires this past year? Uh, it was. Um, we lost the entire 2018 vintage. Um, it's the first time that has happened, not to fire, but to smoke damage. Okay. Um, what happened was um, the fires were sufficiently close that smoke and ash sort of covered the area and uh, it gets into the grapes. It doesn't hurt the vines. The vines will be fine next year. But for that harvest, uh, we lost the entire. Uh, wow. Once in the past, we lost about a third because by the time the fires came, we'd harvested two-thirds of the vintage that year. Um, but this year, we lost the entire vintage. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I enjoy the, the wine um, making. Um, I, I'm uh, involved in... Um, uh, a, a film production company. Uh, we have, um, um, we are participating in a film that's coming out this summer, uh, Men in Black International. We had one of the highest rated um, uh, films on Netflix last year called The Babysitter. And, uh, and we um, had a, a very successful uh, movie um, uh, starring Bella Thorne and Patrick Schwarzenegger, uh, called Midnight Sun. Um, and um, I might have an extended conversation with you later because I, <laughs> I, um, my my major is film. 
Oh, so really? Before, before I went to law school. Oh, that's great. I studied film, specifically screenwriting. Oh, that's great. So this intrigues me. Oh, I wish yeah. we had more time, yeah. but that's, yeah. that's yeah. wonderful. And I, I very much enjoy the, that, that whole uh, area because it's very creative. And so I think yeah. you might even be able to screen. Yeah. Screen yeah. 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 To screen I know, but you do, have to, you do have to be able to tell a story. Absolutely. If you're a lawyer. Yeah, and, at and, the podium you have yeah, exactly. to do. Yeah, and and and, so, and and the films are really just telling the story, and um, and also I mean a trial is really a morality play. You know, you've got the producer who's right. the client, you've got the actors and actresses who are the witnesses and the lawyers, you've got the <coughs> script writer who is preparing all of the outlines, you've got the um, People who do the charts, you know, they're really the special effects people. So I mean, you really you can really make an analogy between the, the film business and uh, and and putting on a trial. Um, and I and I like to and I like to play cards. So um, so I have uh, you know between uh, movies and wine and sailing and cards, I've got a lot of a lot of lot going on. Lot, lot going do you on. play blackjack? I, I, I do sometimes play blackjack, but the, the, <laughs> um, the, 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 the problem with blackjack is that it's not a very creative game. The, uh, the way you win by blackjack is by being extremely disciplined, counting all the cards. Yes. It's work. It is. You know, if, if you're going to be successful at blackjack, it, it's, it's really work. Poker, bridge, hearts can be more creative, and, and, and you have to be a little bit less... A little bit less disciplined on it. Anyway, I understand that you have other places to be, so I'll, I'll let Bruce <coughs> sign us off. Well, thank you so much. This was really a great, a great discussion, and and once again, thank you for coming out Absolutely. here to, to ASU. And and uh, I'm starting to feel guilty that we've kept you busy all day now, knowing <laughs> that you have all those other interests <laughs> that you're not being able to attend to. But uh, but uh, it's been a, a great day so far, and, and thank you so much. Well, the law is my first interest, okay. far and away, and so I've, I've enjoyed it very much. Okay. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.